When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. Um, you know, as I'm recording this uh, interview today, we're just on the cusp of uh, a national election. And I kind of look around and a lot of what I observe out there doesn't seem to be particularly, and I'm going to use the word very intentionally here, peaceful. There's a <laughs> lot of discord, a lot of strife, a lot of you and us and them and they and I mean blaming and I mean all of the stuff that can actually be pretty roiling if we're not really kind of paying attention to things. So I'm, I'm excited to have as a as, as a guest today uh, Amy Baylog, and she has got a very interesting uh, perspective. Uh, now she's first of all you know, she heads up an organization called Connection Point Services LLC, and we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Um, the the whole thrust of why I wanted her on the program has to do with her take on and the way that she positions how leaders actually function in the world. And what we see in the world today is a function of basically what leaders are causing. Cause, you know, leaders cause movement. That's what they do. They cause movement. And in my estimation in the work that I do, a lot of the movement is uh, not particularly elegant because there's a lot of things that need to be cleaned up after the leader has moved you know, through the environment. And elegance is something I pay a lot of attention to. Minimal unintended consequences. Am I getting the result that I want and not having to go back and spend a lot of resources cleaning up after myself? Amy's take on this has to do with peace over performance. And there's a bunch <laughs> embedded <laughs> in that three-word three statement, peace right. over performance. So, Amy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Blaine, I am, I'm delighted. And especially after I've had time to sort of, you know, procure and curate a lot of your book and other, you know, shows that you've done meeting is such an honor too, with so many of the leaders that you've talked to and your mission on compassionate capitalism. It's beautiful. And thank you for having me today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. So, um, you know, just by way of kind of migrating into the conversation here, what was your path to where you got peace over performance as kind of the focus of life's work today? Well, um, I, try, I, I don't want to make this too long, but I consider myself in my third chapter of my whole life in my 50s. So I, I think, you know, however you might want to frame it, when I was a little girl, uh, I was just very interested in peacemaking as a child. Uh, I wanted to mediate fights, whether it be an <laughs> argument at the house, 
Uh, I don't know if any of your listeners know the Enneagram, if they want to fashion me as an Enneagram 9, potentially. I know, I was going to say, you sound like an Enneagram 9. Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, I wrote letters to people to try to create peace. So peacemaking in the first season and chapter of my life grew into my adulthood and my corporate career, which was essentially a corporate sales and corporate sales leadership career, which for complex sales, which usually involves selling initiatives and companies that would permanently change the company. And so there was always a lot of fear and, and, and intensity and uh, politics and glorious and ugly behaviors involved in that career. Mm-hmm. And as a peacemaker, it was really an interesting thing. And I, Flung on to the body of work of Daniel Goleman and emotional intelligence back in my corporate career, because what I learned through that, leading teams and dealing with the fear that evolved on both sides, you know, our team not wanting to fail on delivery and be fired, or an executive not wanting to be fired by making the decision of hiring us. Uh, was that emotional intelligence was a very powerful way to be a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. And I became uh, deeply embedded with all those materials in that part, which led me to chapter two of my life. And I think it's, you know, there's some research career wise that, you know, at some point we start to really become awakened by what we really, really want to do versus what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't want to be in global outsourcing anymore. So what really I couldn't define at the time when I started Connection Point and at a dangerously difficult time in the world, which is, was 2008. So we had, we, you know, I had a lot of people looking at me like I was nuts, but that's, um, you know, and I spent probably, you know, I had two fortunate things happen. I did invest, you know, upwards of $40,000 or more in various certifications. But I also want to credit my launch of Connection Point to some fantastic clients, as I have shared with you earlier, that looking back today were innovators in leadership development, and they let me experiment. And so I kind of got a great start. And what I learned, something shifted over the years in my 15 years now in this practice about peace was to be an effective at having abundance and being someone that can build bridges, your career can accelerate as a leader. But there was something that I started to see as a pattern. And for a long time, I never had really words for it, but then I finally was able to identify it. And this is where peace or performance comes from, which is that I was seeing clients that were very experienced leaders. They had decades in their career and basically should theoretically have nothing to fear about what they were leading, but they would. And at the very core of it, it was that their identity was bound to their job. Yep. And more narrowly bound to the performance. Yeah. And I realized that what was happening was in my way of understanding it is that, and I could see this also, you know, reflecting back in my previous years that performance cannot fuel performance, interestingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think yep. all of your work, you, do, you, you would understand this, that it can't. And, you know, as you say in your book that everyone's a leader, 
uh, the real leader in us is the is what I would articulate as your peace self, which is your peace self is the knowing that you are always loved, worthy and learning at all times. And that that is what actually fuels your performance self, which is I'm going to show up and do some amazing things here. I'm going to lead. I'm going to be productive. We're going to achieve things. But what I learned in helping my clients unhook their identity from their job and their performance is they needed to understand their peace self. And I I won't go down this rabbit hole just yet, but we don't talk about peace and performance in the same sentences. <laughs> we separate them. Peace yeah. is this thing we do if we go on a retreat or we take a sabbatical or we go into our mindfulness or meditation practice or we have when we're not at work, but when the, the fiery thrusts of intense performance, we actually need our peace the most. Mm-hmm. We need our peace to be that actual fuel in the moment. And so my quest became unhooking my clients. And it wasn't just this beautiful idealism. I'm also certified in a lot of behavioral instruments. So I also started to really work on the behavioral side of it and help my clients get both a framework, a wireframe for the words of peace or performance, help them acquire meaningful data so they could make meaningful choices and begin to re-engineer their paradigm of performance with peace. And that happened. So that's my second season. And I would say I'm almost in my third chapter now of my life, which is I started writing a hashtag about peace or performance openly because I just didn't have time for a book because I was so busy with clients. (laughs) And COVID hit. And I'm sequestered at the time back then in Atlanta in a high rise, which is really weird to isolate in a high rise. That's all I got to say about that. It's very strange. And I felt fear everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was coaching a number of clients. One of them was a hospital, which was setting up COVID units. And it was pretty extraordinary to coach a client where they had employees on suicide watch. Yeah. And I started to. Right. And then also right before all that, my mom had passed away. And that's a whole nother story that ties into this. We're really powerful. I then decided that I couldn't sit and wait to talk about peace over performance to the world with someday I'll get my book organized. I just decided to create a hashtag. And now I probably have thousands of posts on LinkedIn under the hashtag of peace over performance. And now I keynote on it and teach it and bring it into everything I do. Yeah. And so that's yeah, kind of a backdrop wait. of what this is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, appreciate that. I mean, I love the, uh, the chronology there and it evokes some really, for me, at least interesting questions that I yeah, I think we can uh, kind of poke holes <laughs> right. in where we end up going. Um, you know, I'm into, and I'll go backwards here just a bit. Um, yeah, in the high rise. I mean, that sequester period, you know, the fear that you were uh, noticing around. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tie this into that, you know, that, that piece for me, you know, that, that space of peace has to do with authenticity. Yeah. I know who I am and I can come back to a home that is, is familiar and is a source of 
who I actually express myself as being in the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the link here to fear, um, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine who uh, you know, passed about a year and a half ago, Jerry Jampolsky, mm. uh, Dr. Jampolsky, um, was very instrumental in The Course in Miracles. Uh, he wrote a fascinating little book back in the 70s, 1970s. Uh, it was called um, uh, <laughs> Fear is the Absence of Love. Mm. And I mean, I'm linking this into the notion of loving myself, not mm -hmm. focusing on the performance out there because I am not my results. The results are just something that occur out there. But mm -hmm. if I love myself, that opens up all kinds of possibilities for me to be able to navigate uncertainty, perturbation, all kinds of stuff out there with a sense of equanimity. I can right. kind of like, kind of float. And I don't mean float in, a, in an abstract, uh, uh, abdicational right. sort of a way. I'm still engaged, right. but there's this, this, this lack of perturbation to the right. soul that occurs. How do, how do you know, in your work with leaders, and I'm very interested in this, how do you actually work with them to transform their reliance on the, uh, the paradigm of I am my results? You know, that's the metric by which I am gauged. Moving over to, that's something that is just out there, who I am. Is mm -hmm. something else. Yeah. I am not my There's an I here that uh, can, mm -hmm. can be a font of all kinds of resourcefulness if I access, access it well. How do you make that transition, just pragmatically? Pragmatically, we, as coaches and people in this field of human and leadership talent development, we focus a lot on skills and mm -hmm. behaviors, right? Yep. Where I shifted to help my clients walk this passageway was around identity and speaking to it differently. And yeah. it was a relationship between three parts of identity. One is we have a relationship, obviously, with our jobs, our work, our vocations, right? We have a relationship with it, right? Yep. And we know that. And we can look at what, we define in the narratives we define within ourselves and are being defined for us around performance with our job. We also have a relationship a separate from our job with our talent. And this is very interesting because this is the stuff that transcends any job or any vocation. This is the stuff that you trust in yourself that is ever evolving and so a big part of my work has been, let's understand what your talent is that is not necessarily attached to how you would write a resume around your job performances, right? It's yep. really getting practical and powerful and owning the agency of that. And what is, there is a different way of speaking to that out of performance, which I have to talk about how this talent always is producing wins versus how I deeply trust and in, in actually enjoy my talent, um, that I see the value in it intrinsically to understand it. And I know what drives me and I know understand the behaviors that motivate me around that. And of course, that can always involve a lot of things in coaching and assessments. And the third thing is we have a relationship with ourselves, our life. So I had a client uh, well, he was, it was interesting. It was, a, it was many, many, many years ago. And this was not a client in my coaching practice. This was a client in my corporate world, but I never forgot this. The story was probably a seed. 
it was a CFO. I had grown to, he was, a, he, first of all, he was a scary dude. A lot of people were afraid of him. You know what I mean? Because he was just, you know, driven and a bit detached and aloof, you know, that kind of alpha personality characteristics. Mm-hmm. And anyway, uh, but I, I learned to work with him in a very complex outsourcing engagement that a company I worked with had sold to this company. Anyway, one day this gentleman wakes up blind. I mean, completely out of the blue, out of the blue. And he never regained his sight and they never figured out for, I I think I never really found out completely, but I remember that they, they couldn't even get a diagnosis for how he overnight literally lost his eyesight. And this was sort of a man that was king of his domain. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And he had to completely change his entire life entirely. And what I saw in this, which stayed with me, is he had to know he, the, the thing he had to do was shed his everything that defined him by way of talent and work. Mm-hmm. He had to become, he had to find a relationship with who he was as a man, as a human living on yeah. the planet. There's the key right there. There's mm-hmm. the key right there that, you know, I'm going to just key on this. Uh, yeah. Everything is relationship. I mean, yeah, that's all any organization is, is a collection of people in, yeah, in relationship. Right. Now, Absolutely. Obviously they're in relationship with each other, but also in relationship with fill in the blank desk, chair, parking space, <laughs> work process <laughs> procedures. There's a relational dynamic to all of that. Right. The fundamental one is my relationship with my identity. Right. There, you know, for me, there's a yeah. Uh, and this goes back to when DOS was the operating you know, environment, and you know, all of the computers, you know, the MS DOS. Right, I remember DOS. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, DOS boy. Uh, there was something it was before cell phones. We're, we're, we're yeah, aging ourselves. Are playing. <laughs> we are dating ourselves. There's no question. But there was something called a TSR program, which you know got you know, booted into the system when the when the computer booted up and TSR was terminal stay resident. It just booted up and then it was out of sight, out of mind, and it just ran. For me, there's two questions that are TSR questions in any you know, leaders or any person's uh, uh, operating system when they're at work or in life. Who am I and where do I belong? Those are the two TSR uh, questions, operating questions. And we are continuously in the process of trying to answer those questions. And anything that doesn't match our answer, all of a sudden we get perturbed. You know, who am I? And you, know, you talk about outsourcing and the, you know, the difficulty of that and the challenge to jobs that that created and all kinds of stuff. Who am I? Where do I belong? If we're outsourcing, what does that mean you know, to me as a, as a player in this organization? So those questions, and you know, I go blind all of a sudden. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where do I belong? Um, so trauma can shift the paradigm. There is no question about that. And I know that the work that you do today that isn't predicated on, <laughs> on having trauma be present in order to shift the paradigm. Um, and this is consistent with how I work as well iteratively over time, you can shift the paradigm by bringing into awareness some of the consequences of an existing paradigm. So you can begin to subsume it. You know, you can begin to change the paradigm by introducing a different possibility, which is one thing that leaders do. 
And this is the whole predicate for me around the notion of compassionate capitalism. Compassionate capitalism is nothing more than an economic paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it can supplant the existing you know, paradigm that we have, but it takes leaders that operate from a position of compassionate awareness. Right. And when you're operating from a position of compassionate awareness, by definition, you're recognizing connection, you're recognizing relationship, you're attending to that qualitative nature, foremost being your relationship with self, which exactly. has to have peace as a foundational component to it. Is, is, is that a fair assessment? It's, it's wonderful. And I love it. And this is why we're talking because, you know, it's, and I like that you point out relationship and relationship to everything, because one of the other things I learned that was important for my clients is really having them discreetly and succinctly assess their relationships and all those dynamics, understand the behaviors that they are most attached to by way of both coaching and some science, you know, with assessment work that I do. But the language of performance self and peace self is very important. So performance self, again, is what I do in action to make things happen. And we live in a very hyper-performance driven world. You know, there's performance reviews, there's high performance programs, there's hypos, hypos, there's performance needed in our quarterly earnings. There's performance, there's, you know, it's everything is attached to performance. There's who's performing in the job, who's not, you know, we can, we can have that relationship, but peace self. A players, B players, one, two, three. C players, rank, ranks, all of that. So we have to transcend. So the, so Part of what I ended up doing is I ended up in, and in my piece of performance LinkedIn uh, post, I, I constantly go back to this, which you said a moment ago was very important, which is to be able to show a contrast. So there is various distinct things that happen to us when we are in our performance cells without attachment to identity of peace. There are specific, I call them performance self-traps, where we are doing things, thinking that we're doing what is right or good or needed or surviving, or we may consciously or unconsciously be driven by fear, but we're really in our performance self. And we aren't having a peace attached to it. So an example, speaking of relationships, is I have very specific exercises I give to my clients that are simplest checklists. So one of the things that happens in a performance self mindset where you are untethered to peace, there's no peace, but you're very busy and maybe even really in the view of many things on paper succeeding, but we can get away with a lot of things in our performance selves with uh, a trap I call relationship scarcity. And that is where we're operating and getting things done. But all around us is actual relationship scarcity. We're getting involved with connections with people as we need them without knowing them. Transactional. Very transactional. Um, We are only able to get so far in the context of conversations. We're really hampered. Um, We are going to be surprised a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to create more work than is needed. So there's a lot of specific behaviors that start going down the line of 
you know, diagnosing, well, first of all, am I really in relationship scarcity? I'll hand my clients a checklist and see if they're actually in there. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm in there. But and then then it's the battle of, well, I can't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. And that's where we begin to say, yes, you can. Well, you let's take a break right now because I want to come back. What can we do? What can when we they do? say? I can't do anything about that. The answer is maybe there's a way. <laughs> right. A way. So talking right now with Amy Billog, uh, we will be right back after this brief break. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to also invite you right now to go to blainebartlett.com. And on that site, which is my personal website, you'll see uh, services up on the top menu. I'd like you to click on Leadership Mastermind. Now, why I want you to do that is we have uh, structured a mastermind program that is very unusual and it is very powerful. And by going onto that site and clicking that link, you'll be taken to a landing page that is an invitation to join this mastermind. It's a 52-week long exploration of what it takes to be a highly effective leader in today's fast-changing environment. You won't regret it. And if you've been liking what you've been listening to on these Soul of Business podcasts, how does one become a leader that can keep connection to the soul of business? That's what we look at. That's what we're about in this mastermind program. So again, go to blainebartlett.com and click on the services link and there you'll find the link to the leadership mastermind program look forward to seeing you there thanks for listening to this little commercial and now back to our show welcome back folks um before we took a break uh amy had uh, raised a provocative question that she will often hear from her clients what can I do about that? There's nothing I can do about that. Really? Really? There is something. Yeah. Actually, there is something you can do about that. So let's jump into that uh, end of the pool and <laughs> kind of see what might be uh, something that you can take away from this you know, as you're listening. You know, to Amy and I have this conversation. If you find yourself in that performance trap, um, what can you do to extricate yourself? What can you do to actually create more possibility of equanimity? And you know, there's a turn of phrase, possibility of equanimity. <laughs> Say that three times <laughs> fast. <laughs> exactly, real fast. So where do we go with this, Amy? How, you know, if I'm a client and uh, I'm going, yeah, God, I recognize I'm here, but I don't, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. That's just the way I am. Where do I go with that? Well... One of the things that um, we we struggle with with this is we will try to follow the current of what we are being told, you know, is all around us. People are telling us what we need to get done. People are telling us what our job is. People are telling us what can happen and what can't happen in this environment. And what is really prevalent right now before I answer this, what can we do thing is just to be honest about some realities, Blaine, is that 
and you and I probably experience this, there is so much incoming for people in corporations and in companies right now. It is unbelievable. Like you will have back-to-back meetings. You will have text streams flying. You will have your instant message portals going. And so people uh, really run at speeds and trying to operate at levels of intake that aren't humanly sustainable. Okay. So um, this is really, every client has to be met where they're at in this business. And to be able to make this shift is to be able to say that I can claim the space to shift. Okay, you cannot do anything I'm going to talk about at all. Staying a busy, what I call a term, I call it, it's a term I have, I use with my clients, I say busy asleep. Where you are really uh, owned by everyone else's schedule and demands entirely. Mm -hmm. And you have given yourself no say so. Um, You have set no boundaries. So that's just to put that up front. And that's the first thing. So we have to love ourselves enough and know that we are in our peace, self, love, worthy and learning to have the courage to not be on and be there for everyone all the time anymore. This is about learning how to say no. And to give yourself your time on this planet, my time, everyone's time and attention is wildly valuable. And the transactionality of the speed upon which we are all consciously or unconsciously expecting ourselves to be available towards is devaluing the incredible value of our time. Mm -hmm. And your energy on that time is important. So the only way you could architect that is if you give yourself space to think and group with yourselves, group with yourself. So first it's the first practical thing is making claim to your identity uh, inside of those you know, inside of what is really valuable in your life mm-hmm. that it sets you up to be valuable for anyone you work with and any vocation, anything you do, what must be held sacred inside of that capsule yep. of your life. And, you know, of course, these could be the big decisions, like my decision to move from Georgia to Ohio, right? These are big decisions, but, you know, it's being clear on that. You have to make the space. And the second thing is yep. to really get help and it really has to usually come from someone professional, like a coach or someone that can help you really define truly what you are trusting in your talent and using your talent and where your space is in your talent, where the best of you is needed. So you define that for people. So in other words, you're not just this, hey, soldier, put me in wherever you need me. Uh, you're not just being yanked around as here's what the job demands. So you do whatever it is. You also have a stake in defining where your talent lives and how it should live. We have to make the space to determine that and work within that. And then from there, the next part of this is really what I call an exhaustive um, 
influencing map exercise, which is where we come back and we take stock of where we really want to have from the value system we have, we're, we're maintaining in our life, the values that we believe we're connecting with in our organization. By the way, this would attach to your work. If you don't feel there's any of that there, then you're working in a purgatory and that's a dangerous place to be. Yep. Like, I don't see my value system attaching to this company at all. That's bad. So you take stock of all that. You take stock of where your talent is. We do an influence map where then you want to aim that leadership influence. And like you say in your book, it's not about your title because people at any part of the organization can enact profound change. We have to do it from this intentional place that I'm describing. And then you say, okay, where do I want to have this impact? And then you build the relationships that you need with certain people. And then you begin, I put my clients through a pretty rigorous exercise of relationship mapping diagnosis, so to speak, you know, what's going on and what approach do we take? And then to begin to ever steadily move out of the transactionality of what's happening with their relationships with people. But you can see it's sort of like this process of first, I have to meet myself in this place and speak to it. And in the ludicrous speed of our work life, we have done something very abnormal, which is we have asked people to forget all of, you know, self-forget. And then in self-forgetting, like, I don't remember why I even care about why I'm working. (laughs) I don't even know what (laughs) I'm about anymore. Even though I'm achieving all this stuff, we're like living the book of Ecclesiastes or something, you know, it's all here, but it's all meaningless. For the sake of what? Yeah. Yeah. For what's, for what? And we're in self-forgetting, we get into a place of self-rejection, especially when we are, you know, you can be in this world. What's interesting about the business cycles and the volatility in our world from just a business standpoint, you know, business cycles used to be so much more predictable. Oh, yeah. And they are so not, you know. Uh, any cycle order to cash, anything, you can pick anything. You can pick b- regular business cycles of how a uh, business understood itself and its industry. It all is changing. And also people can be declared, uh, you know, incompetent as a leader overnight in various ways too. Zero or zero. Based here, that's what I was just going to use those words. Exactly. Yep. So the variability of zero to zero is much more high potential for all of us, you know, it could become, it could, it's, you know, anything can create. Mm-hmm. So people, you know, if you don't have this sense of all these other things I described, and then these other things happen to you, you can see how you say, like, this has been for nothing, you know, and then yeah. it's just a downward spiral. And one of the things that's, I think is the, so most of my client work is companies hiring me, which I'm very happy. I have good corporate clients I've known for years that share this philosophy, that have me come in and do this work with some of their leaders. Every once in a while, though, I will, through my network, get an executive that has lost his or her way, and they're scrambling to get their next job, you know, because they've created a lifestyle upon which, and it's an ego thing. It's like, I've got to stay in the game in the way I've always known myself, in the game. But they're coming in. shredded Mm -hmm. can't do it 
Can't do it. You can't do it. You know, the thing about performance orientation is it lends itself to judgment. And right. I mean, not just lends itself to judgment. It's predicated on judgment. Did I do it or did I not do it? Is it good? Is it bad? Did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? And I'm reminded of a, of a quote, you know, Rumi, yeah, out, before, uh, out beyond this uh, right making and wrong making, there's a field and I will meet you there. And that <laughs> field is a field of consciousness and love where, you know, if I can connect in that field, other things become possible and I move away from right making and wrong making, blame begins to disappear. All of those things that we find ourselves engaged with in most of the organizations on this planet today, um, they, them, you know, all of this stuff. Yes. I love the conversation, peace over performance. Um, Amy, where can people find out more about what you specifically are up to and uh, get some access to what I'm sure is just an incredible font of resources. Oh, thank you. Well, actually it's, it is just basic. I have a website, but actually it's LinkedIn is the best, right? So, cause that's where I do most of my prolific writing about this whole thing. So if you just, you can go to the hashtag on LinkedIn peace over performance, or you can find me Amy B A L O G and just get on my profile. And that's where I will post podcasts with wonderful, amazing authors and leaders like you and, you know, connect with people and uh, yeah, we're, we're easiest place to find me. Easiest place. Okay. Folks, this is Blaine Bartlett. You've been listening to um, Amy Baylog as we've been talking about uh, peace over performance and um, just those three words. I started off this uh, episode, just you know, kind of marking out those three words. They are transformational. When you begin to think about how you transact and I'm literally using this word intentionally. Transact <laughs> your business on the planet today. Don't forget that it's just a relationship. And, that's, right. and I say just a relationship, not in a diminutive way. The relationship is absolutely crucial. And you want a qualitative relationship. That's what leaders pay attention to, highly effective leaders. Peace over performance. You got to be able to smooth the waters in order to be effective long-term and sustainable long-term so that you're healthy. So uh, this has been uh, a fascinating conversation, Amy. I, I, I appreciate the time. I appreciate your insight. It's been great. I loved it. Thank you so much. You bet. This, um, let's see here. Where am I going with this? The next episode I want you to tune into as well, because we've got some other stuff coming up here that I think you're going to find intriguing. Check this one out. Yeah. And um we're going to be playing with uh, peace over performance in some different ways, I think, here. So, um, Blaine Bartlett, you're listening to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. Check out my website. There's a lot of uh, resources there that you can access as well, uh, blainebartlett.com. And at the end of the day, do an assessment. Did you find yourself being a center of distribution or did you find yourself being a center of accumulation? If you're being a center of distribution, things are going to be pretty, uh, pretty nice in your world. If you're focused on accumulation, it's not going to work real well long-term. But, you know, old friend of mine, uh, again, another, <laughs> this is becoming too common. I keep saying an old friend of mine who is now deceased, um, Bob Proctor, uh, had a little epiphany just before he died. He was uh, in a conversation with another friend of mine. And he said, you know, I found out that generosity is the cause of joy. Mm -hmm. Generosity is the cause of joy. So find things that you can give away, find things, find ways that you can give yourself away and uh, be a center, like I said, of distribution, not a center of accumulation. 
and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.